term industrial farming is often meant as a criticism to the way we currently produce our food. But what if industrialization is actually our best hope for an abundant and sustainable food future? There's no such thing as natural farming. It's always going to have an impact on the land. It's always going to be disruptive. It's always going to be taking some kind of you know, animal or whatever, flora and fauna, and pushing it off to replace it with something that we want to grow. Alex Smith is a senior food and agriculture analyst at the Breakthrough Institute. The path he sees to a more sustainable agriculture would include significant increases to public investments made into research and development. Agriculture R&D is 66% of what it was in real terms, in real numbers, than in 2000. So we're, we're significantly lower than we were and for a long time, the U.S. was the global leader in ag R&D. We were spending more money than anybody at the public level. I think now we're second to China and significantly lower than they are. Could it be that our pastoral ideas of what we want agriculture to look like be what's keeping us from facing the realities of how our food system needs to evolve? People do think of farms as there's like six horses, 30 cows and a bunch of chickens and that, you know, there's a blueberry patch and a cornfield. Yeah, that's really not what American agriculture looks like. The Breakthrough Institute's Alex Smith joins me on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and if you're interested in where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, I think you found the right show. Today's episode is made possible thanks to the generous support of our quarterly presenting sponsor, Sound Agriculture. Many of you listening will be familiar with Sound Ag from when we featured CEO Adam Lytle on the show back in January. Spoiler alert, he's coming back on to talk a little bit more in a couple weeks. And it's a great time to talk about their source product because just about everywhere you look, fertilizer prices are high. And in some cases, availability itself is a big problem. So finding a better source of crop nutrients going forward is on top of a lot of people's minds. Well, believe it or not, that nutrient source might just be your soil. Source from Sound Agriculture unlocks more than nutrients already in your fields, so you can apply less fertilizer while still getting the yield you're counting on. Source is a foliar applied biochemistry that activates soil microbes to unlock more nitrogen and phosphorus. It works with the soil you've already got and equipment you already use to wake up the soil, so it's kind of like caffeine for microbes, if you will. Visit sound.ag to learn more. That's sound.ag. And thank you so much to Sound Agriculture for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, I'm very pleased to be joined on today's episode by Alex Smith, Senior Food and Agriculture Analyst at the Breakthrough Institute, which is a global research center that identifies and promotes technological solutions to environmental and human development challenges. And speaking of challenges, today's episode might just challenge you a little bit. To give you an idea of what I mean, before I interview guests, I always ask them to fill out this brief pre-interview form to help me dig into the right areas uh, during the conversation so I know kind of where to go deep and where we could just kind of move through the story. Uh, one way I can always tell how much I'm going to enjoy an interview is based on how they approach one question in particular. That question is, what are the top arguments of the critics of the work you do? 
Many times, guests will leave that blank, which is okay, or answer very generically, which is fine. Uh, But it's when someone gives a thoughtful answer to this question in particular that I really get excited to dig in. And Alex gave one of the most comprehensive answers to that question that I have ever seen. And I think I'll just go ahead and read it to you because it's both a trigger warning for some of you, uh, but also a way to intrigue most of you about what you're about to hear. So here's Alex's answer. He says, I think a relatively common critique that I give real weight to is that my work and breakthroughs more broadly has tunnel vision for greenhouse gas and land use and not other environmental or ecological or animal welfare ethics issues. Another important critique is that by supporting the technologies and practices of large scale agricultural production, I effectively justify the expropriation of land and concentration of power into the hands of largest agricultural corporations landowners and interest groups by advocating for mass production of food and in in parentheses he says see my and ted norhouse's essay in jacobin magazine i miss out on the problems of nutrition and diet related diseases a critique from the right is that the focus on industrial policy and even public r&d is significantly less important than getting the government out of the way of the ag sector and letting private entities be successful finally in arguing for sustainable intensification and productivity growth how do you limit the expansion of agricultural production due to rebound effects Basically, given Jevons' paradox, which this is a note from Tim, is basically uh, that gains in efficiency will just lead to gains in consumption, is Jevons' paradox. So anyway, back to back to Alex. He says, basically, given Jevons' paradox, do we need to have very strong conservation policy that will likely run counter to the interests of ag producers and businesses who want to expand production due to more productive practices? Anyway, that was his answer, which I thought was fantastic. Fantastic. I mean, it just showed someone who is really thinking critically uh, on both sides of, of many of these issues. And I think that will come through in the interview you're about to hear. But thank you, Alex, for basically doing my interviewers work for me by coming up with such a fantastic response to that question. Well, with that, let's dive into this conversation. Alex joined Breakthrough as a research analyst in the food and agriculture program in 2019 after completing a dual M-A-M-S-C, so Master's of Arts, Master's of Science in International and World History from Columbia University and the London School of Economics and Political Science. In his master's, Alex studied and wrote about American foreign policy, French colonialism, and environmental history. Alex is interested in the entangled nature of politics, power, and geography, and the central role that food and agriculture have played across time and space. I'm going to drop you in the conversation here where Alex is kind of talking about what led him from that master's into the work he does today at the Breakthrough Institute. Initially, when I like sort of went to grad school, I was really interested in like U.S. foreign policy history and World War II. Like I was practically a middle-aged dad, but I, I started taking environmental history courses, and I really sort of got excited about some of the sort of conversations around like what is nature, like what is wilderness, what is the role of humanity in nature, and I think that a lot of the sort of really critical work that's been done to sort of show that nature is is not really a thing. It's not a thing that you can separate from humanity and sort of taking that and looking at like sort of modern environmentalist perspectives in this sort of more back to nature kind of agricultural ideology I sort of saw that. And it just seemed like they were really creating these like very strong 
false dichotomies between what is human and what is natural, and then sort of ignoring the actual sort of impact that humans have on nature automatically. So they look at like sort of organic farming and sort of say like, oh, this is like as close to natural farming as we can do. But there's no such thing as natural farming. It's always going to have an impact on the land. It's always going to be disruptive. It's always going to be taking some kind of, you know, animal or whatever, flora and fauna and pushing it off to replace it with something that we want to grow. So I think sort of being honest about the impacts of any kind of agricultural production, whether it's like crop landscape, whether it's a pasture landscape, means that we have to sort of embrace the fact that we're going to have these impacts. So I think that just looking at the base assumptions of the sort of natural farming, organic, dealing with the base issue at that level, I think you just can't be natural farming. I didn't necessarily have as strong of a sort of reaction to this as I do now when I started Breakthrough. I think the the sort of the piece of information that has been the most sort of influential in this is just looking at land use and like the impacts that like high intensity agriculture has had on reducing the amount of land needed to produce the food that we make in the world and the food that we need. And I think there are organic farms that can boast like better local environmental impacts. And even in some cases, like close to sort of conventional agricultural level yields, or maybe not as much that they, they produce like close to conventional agriculture level of greenhouse gas emissions over their total acreage, but they have much lower yields. When you sort of extrapolate that out and look at a global level, and you're talking about changing the system to be uh, more organic or more regenerative or et cetera, then you're talking about a significant increase in the amount of land we need to produce the food that we need. And that, that in and of itself is like a, a bigger climate impact. It's a bigger sort of impact on like societal and sort of economic relationships everywhere in the world. And there's just a, there's all these sort of unintended consequences that are extremely negative. And like, we can't really sacrifice those things in favor of maybe having a better sort of relationship to nature here in the United States. That's sort of like one of the focuses on this or a better relationship to nature in Europe, for example. Yeah. And I think I'm someone who I, I grew up in agriculture and so definitely kind of have a sense of how productive it needs to be. And I don't think anybody can really have a good grasp on the scale of our food system. It's just almost impossible to grasp, but somewhat of a, you know, a concept of that. One term that's often applied to it as criticism is extractive, that we have this really extractive industry. And what I hear you saying is like, yeah, it's extractive. Like we have this industry so we could extract the nutrients we need to survive as humans. And if we move to kind of these more, whatever you want to call it, sustainable, uh, natural, regenerative, organic solutions, all you're doing is sort of like spreading that extraction across more land use, which is going to mean we have to have more land in agriculture in general. I mean, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think so. And I think that one of the sort of critiques or one of the issues that I've seen sort of pressing this or talking about this is that I think a lot of people hear sort of what I'm saying and what Breakthrough talks about. And it's like, you guys are defending like the worst of the worst offenders. You're defending like the, uh, like Mon Satan people. You're defending like this thing that is, you know, terrible on labor. It's terrible on every front, terrible on animal ethics, everything. And I think that like, yeah, we're defending the efficiency of these things looking at that and sort of recognizing the value. But I think there's still a lot of room to improve this system, to improve this like high efficiency, intensive system, to make it potentially less extractive 
and I think I would argue is less impactful than even the sort of organic, regenerative, sustainable model that a lot of our critics and a lot of uh, a lot of like mainstream environmentalists, but also I think a lot of sort of mainstream people think is or what regular people think is the more sort of sustainable kind of agriculture. Right. Well, I mean, it's an attractive idea, right? That we can go back to this pastoral system that we used to have and all of our problems will be solved. You know, obviously there's a lot of issues with that, but I'm curious on the other side, you know, of of taking what's good about the system, really efficient from a productivity standpoint and land use efficiency, you know, what types of areas would be top of the list for you as far as improving on that when it comes to something like greenhouse gas emissions and carbon footprint? I think um, one of the things that I focused on in like the past three years is like looking at beef production. And I think there's a lot of potential technologies that reduce the environmental impacts of beef. There's a lot of sort of technical interventions we can do. And I think we can sort of look at a lot of different areas of the sort of broad agriculture sector, all the different industries in it. I think we can like sort of pick at these little sort of technological solutions and sort of slowly reduce emissions. I think there are also some like really bigger more system-wide changes. And I think one of those is alternative proteins. If you can create really good alternatives to meat that are appealing to consumers, but are not, you know, the products of animal agriculture, there you have a lot of potential to reduce emissions. I also think, and this is maybe slightly French, and I don't know if Breakthrough even shares this position, is that there's sort of reasons to like not be so concerned about emissions from agriculture. And I think we can slowly get at reducing these emissions. But I think the sort of priority also for me is food security, making sure that people are fed and making sure that people are fed without paying their entire biweekly paycheck to do it. And I think sort of bridging these things together is really important. I think on a sort of other broader scale, there, there are other levers outside of technology. There are like all these sort of policy levers that we talk a lot about at Breakthrough that are sort of policy technology mix. So I think agriculture R&D and sort of, we don't know like what the next breakthrough kind of thing is. We don't know what the sort of next good intervention in a system is, but sort of plugging away at like the sort of questions in agronomy, the questions in crop sciences, the questions in animal science to be able to sort of slowly reduce emissions and increase productivity the way that people have for, for millennium. And if we could do that faster or better than we have in the past, you look at the last uh, hundred years, there is a, a, a massive speed up in agricultural productivity. Agricultural productivity grew by 4.6 fold, I think, from 1900 to 2000, uh, maybe 1904 to 2015 or something. I can't remember exactly the dates. And that's a huge change. And that's partially a result of agriculture becoming more extractive. But it's also a result of like improved practices, improved technologies across the board. It's not just like fertilizer use and GMO seeds, et cetera. GMO is a much later story even. But there are all these sort of technologies that were both a product of farmers tinkering and sort of producers and private companies finding new technologies to sell, but also, and very importantly, a product of agricultural R&D at the public level and federally funded ag R&D, both the United States and all over the world. So really getting back to some of the sort of really basic improvement kind of things that we see and have seen over the last you know century or so. Yeah. And, and let's hone in on that agriculture R&D funding because, you know, I hear I hear it from, you know, people in extension that they're having to, like, fight for these dollars. It doesn't sound like 
we're getting the funding out there that needs to be out there for public funding for R&D. You know, I know we just passed this Inflation Reduction Act that had a lot of money going a lot of different places. What is the current state of that funding and is it adequate in, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it is definitely not adequate. Uh, the the USDA Economic Research Service in June of this year came out with a report um, looking at ag R&D spending at a federal level and looking at inflation adjusted numbers for ag R&D at a federal level. And they found that agriculture R&D is 66 percent of what it was in real terms, in real numbers than in 2000. So we're, we're significantly lower than we were. And I think we're now at about the same level as people were funding in the 70s. And for, for a long time, the US was the global leader in ag R&D. We were spending more money than anybody at a public level. I think now we're second to China and significantly lower than they are. And the Inflation Reduction Act, for example, the original, like the Build Back Better bill, had a ton of money for ag R&D. There's a lot of stuff earmarked in there for really, I think, important technologies, things like uh, methane-reducing technologies of beef, for example, sort of across the board. But the IRA, I think, maybe had like $50 million in total for ag R&D, and it wasn't through the sort of the main channels that you would expect. Most of the money in IRA for agriculture is for like climate-smart agriculture through conservation practices. So it's just funding the adoption of existing technologies and practices. Some of those technologies and practices, things that like may improve carbon sequestration, they're not really climate solutions. And they're in some ways, they're more like ways to sort of sell carbon credits to people. So there's a lot of stuff in there that, you know, looks good. And I think there's a lot of benefit for farmers and producers, but it doesn't really do what, what I think it should do in terms of increasing agriculture R&D. And this is, this is, I think, really important because I think a lot of the sort of conversations around decarbonization get stuck or like focus on energy production and like transportation and these other sort of big segments of greenhouse gas emissions. And when we get stuck on those, we're sort of like, oh, we have a lot of technologies. We have things like wind and solar. We have nuclear if you're like breakthrough sort of pro-nuclear. We have electric vehicles. We have a lot of means to reduce emissions. But then you start looking at agriculture and we don't have alternatives that actually meaningfully reduce emissions the way that these technologies and other sectors do. So when you start funding adoption of practices and technologies to reduce emissions, you're just at the edges. And it's like the least sexy version of what I was saying before about like we can look at all of these industries and sort of slowly cut emissions and improve efficiency. But we're not even getting to that point where we're doing that in any meaningful way. It's not going to reduce the 11% of U.S. emissions as agriculture. It's not going to get a ton done towards that end. But if you're doing research that is boosting productivity, that is going to benefit food security, but it's also going to reduce the amount of land you need. So continuing the sort of productivity enhancing R&D is a really big part of this puzzle. And we at Breakthrough, we're sort of in the midst of writing a few reports, but we released one in September. So we basically found that if you double U.S. agriculture R&D, you get a global reduction of emissions by 2050. But you also, more importantly, get a pretty significant global reduction in land use from agriculture if you put it together with conservation programs. And, you know, I noticed earlier you kind of mentioned that, you know, a lot of the money in the Inflation Reduction Act is more like sort of greasing the wheels for carbon markets, um, which makes me think maybe you don't see that as like the global solution to greenhouse gas emissions, uh, which I would understand is part of that, though, because 
that might be sort of an incentive for more land use. I mean, if you're getting money from just farming the land, I mean, to me, that would be incentive to put more land into production. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I do not think that carbon markets are, you know, sort of the decarbonizing future. I don't know if a lot of people think this way, but definitely some people do. I think there's a lot of problems, especially when you talk about soil carbon sequestration. We don't really have an idea of the permanence of this. And when we do, it's usually not very permanent. And the actual sort of accounting methods, I think it does often just give people money for doing practices that they've either already been doing or that don't actually have the benefits that they say they do. And I think to your point that it's another incentive to farm. And while I think that like we have incentives to farm that are going to be enduring, we're going to continue to farm no matter what. I'm not, I think there are some people who are like, let's get rid of farms altogether in the future. I don't think it's a real solution to this problem either. I do think that like we do need to be very careful about incentivizing more and more land use. This is also one of the one of the sort of issues with the model that sort of we're in favor of, this sort of more intensive productivity enhancing model, because that also creates incentives for more production. Because if you're reducing like increasing productivity, you're often reducing prices in the long run, which then makes farmers want to produce more on more land so they can actually get at the sort of same value they had before. So you really need to sort of combine productivity enhancement with conservation practices with a much stronger sort of focus on reducing these incentives. So yeah, I mean, I think that being very careful about incentives for land use change, incentives for more farming is going to be an important sort of question for decarbonization. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, my, my opinion tends to be we have made tremendous gains in efficiency on the farm. Not to say that there aren't more efficiency gains to be had. Certainly there are, but there are a lot of opportunities after the farm. I mean, post-harvest. I don't know if you guys have have done much analysis on kind of, you know, food waste type solutions, but it, it does seem like productivity is one place we ought to continue to focus, but also like utilization to making sure that the the nutrients get to the people who need the nutrients. I don't know. I, I'd, I'd like to kind of hear some of your thoughts there or if you've looked at food waste specifically or, or other areas that you find important there. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at food waste and I don't think breakthrough has in any meaningful way. I agree that I think it's an important sort of lever to pull, it's like an important vector there. And I think there's a lot of, I mean, just the, the statistics on food waste in the United States and globally are consistently shocking. And I, I think that it's a, like a very good pragmatic solution I think a lot of people tend to sort of be like, okay, like we shouldn't talk about productivity. Let's just talk about food waste. And I don't tend to agree with that. And I think there's an impetus sometimes to be like, we have enough food. We don't need to grow more food. And I also think that there's a lot of sort of mistaken sets of thinking there. I think there's really not an issue with abundance. And I think when you have, you know, millions and millions of people starving in the world or like facing food insecurity, then there's a lot of questions to be asked about people who say we have enough food. But yeah, to, to that point too, I think this is, I mean, thinking back to sort of like February and March of this year when people were very concerned, rightfully so, I think, about the invasion of Ukraine and sort of the transport of food in the world and the global trade of food. There's a lot more efficiency possible in global trade and sort of global food trade and sort of making sure that exports get to the right place, that food is actually given to the people that need it. Because I'm still critical of people who say we have enough food, but I do agree with the sort of principle that like famines are often man-made problems. They're often political problems, not production problems. And if you can either reduce waste and like improve the emissions and like sort of environmental efficiency of agriculture, that's great. But you can also do this and like find sort of ways to 
make the system more efficient or work better so that food actually gets to the places that it needs to go. Again, these are ways that like there isn't a trade-off between environmental benefits, decarbonization, and food security. Yeah. Yeah. And then along similar lines, you know, one of the, the dark areas of the food system that I know you've explored is is crime in the food system and food fraud, you know, and, and it's similar in that it's post-harvest and it's um, things are going wrong somewhere between the farm and the consumer who needs it. You know, can you talk about the problem of food fraud and food crime more generally? I really have a lot of anecdotal evidence here. I don't really have a great sense of like how big of a problem this is, but I think it's like a philosophical problem as much as it is like an actual sort of physical problem. But yeah, I, I became interested in this subject uh, a while ago, I think just like looking at reading about the role of cartels in the avocado industry, like some very large percentage of the avocados that US citizens eat come from the state of Michoacan in Mexico. And in February of this year, the USDA banned import of avocados from Mexico because of a threat to an APHIS. Uh, I can't remember the like Animal Plant Health Inspection Service, I think is what it is. One of their officers was threatened by somebody related to organized crime in Michoacan. And the USDA responded by banning avocado imports for like two weeks. It was around the Super Bowl. People were worried about guacamole. And that sort of pushed me to like, let's look into this a little bit and see what's going on. Because I think one thing that is tied to this as well is such like people want to know where their food comes from. People like want to know what production practices go into making their food. But at the end of the day, an avocado is an avocado. And you can't really look at an avocado and say, this was grown in Michoacan. This was grown in Southern California. This was grown organically or conventionally. This was used fertilizer or pesticides were used on it. You know, what labor went into this? There are all these questions that are not answerable by the actual food itself, by the commodity. So there's just a lot of room across the sort of food system for fraud, for people just making up things. And in looking at the, the sort of avocado example, there's a lot of other sort of similar organized crime examples. There's a lot of theft of nuts in the California Central Valley. Again, these are like high, high value products that you can't tell me that this pistachio was bought and sold legally from this farmer or that it came through some dark web of uh, organized crime that took it from California to the bodega in New York. So you can't, you can't really say it that way. And then this sort of led me also to think about labeling and sort of how a lot of the contemporary sort of alternative food movement has like turned to labeling as a way to sort of signal different kinds of virtues in the food system. And that I think there are a bunch of these really high profile cases of fraud in the organic and regenerative community, like Bel Campo meats, uh, which I think does not exist anymore, got in a lot of trouble in, I think it was 2019, 2019, 2020, when a person at one of their stores in Santa Monica, California, sort of just went live on Instagram and sort of went to social media. It was like, this meat is not coming from the regenerative farm that we're saying it's coming from. We're buying a pound of this ground beef for $10 and selling it for $45. Uh, and maybe it wasn't ground beef, maybe it was a ribeye or something. And we're just fooling customers on this. And then there's a number of significant stories in the organic community with things like grains, with things that are sort of like the back. There's a, a lot of sort of pre-consumer trading in organics when you want to talk about like organic feed for chickens or pigs a lot of that you know is organic grown cereals and grains but then when people dug into there's a case of a person named randy constant who sold i think upwards of like a hundred million dollars of 
conventional grains, calling them organic and selling them to feed companies to sell to chickens and pork producers. To me, this sort of signals an issue when we're sort of tying like value in the food chain to luxury goods. And I think this sort of signals, this is also sort of like a relevant question when it comes to like carbon markets as well, where the good thing is associated with like the more expensive thing. And we're able to sort of upsell products because they're virtuous on like an emissions or a sort of ethical or whatever standpoint. Then that like opens the door for fraud to be done where you're actually just selling the sort of basest product and making it seem like it's like a very high value product. And we can't ever know. I think just fundamentally, these are commodities. Like the commodification of this is going to always make it difficult to say whether this is good or bad. And to me, the conclusion of a lot of this work was to sort of say, we really shouldn't be making the better thing more expensive. We should be making the cheapest thing better. And I think that a lot of the sort of impetus in like modern food movements is to sort of look towards luxury as the thing that is going to save us. If we can like get at a luxury market, then that'll like benefit the farmers doing the better practices. But that I think is just a really limited pathway to any kind of like large scale change. You know, the whole challenge with all of this and questions I wrestle with on a regular basis is to your point earlier, you have to optimize for those that that have the least amount of uh, means to purchase the food that they need. But I think you also have to optimize, you know, for the producer side, you know, to those farmers who maybe are operating on the most slim margins. They don't have the economies of scale of the large corporates. And so trying to reconcile those two livelihoods, you know, the livelihood of the person struggling to feed their family and the livelihood of the person struggling to keep, let's say, a a farm in their family that's been in there for generations. And like those two things just at the end of the day, you know, seem to be at odds. Um, And so I guess, you know, taking all of this that we're talking about here. You know, how, how do you advise your friends that are like, okay, you're an analyst of food and agriculture. So tell us what, what should we do? Uh, uh, maybe, it, maybe it says something about my friends, but I don't think they don't really ask me that much. <laughs> they don't, they don't want your opinion. Actually, the, I, that says something about all of us. Do we really want anyone to tell us what we should or shouldn't eat? I think that a lot of my close friends know that I'll tell them no matter what. Uh, so it's also, uh, there's an issue there maybe. But yeah, I think I think a lot of just generally speaking, a lot of the sort of mainstream or sort of the the popular opinion is that like we need to eat local, you know, we need to do all this kind of stuff. And I think there's more and more awareness, I think, as of late, that those aren't really grand solutions. And I think there's a real problem here where you have sort of the consumer benefit versus the producer benefit. And I think the like small family farmer, which it exists in the United States, but much less than it used to. Like there is a real sort of, you can't have the same kind of prosperity that you once could as a producer on a farm. And I think that some of the local stuff is very positive towards it. Like it's keeping like sort of economic prosperity nearby. It sort of rewards like the farmer's market where you actually, oh, you're seeing the farmer in front of you, like you're actually buying from there. I think there's There's a lot of good in that sort of thinking, but again, it runs counter to the actual sort of environmental benefits that people are talking about. I think there's a way that that's conflated very heavily. And again, it's also often like the solution to the farmer, the farmer's benefit problem is often framed as like a luxury good one. 
you know, we need to make their products luxury goods. And I think that a lot of this sort of conversation focuses on the farmer and the sort of landowner rather than like the laborer. And I think there's a, a blog by Nathan Rosenberg and I can't remember the Bryce something or another. They did it for the sort of the Yale Law School agricultural blog. Their sort of conclusion was that like we should really be looking towards like the actual laborer, the sort of farm laborer, the farm worker as like the site to get into sort of economic relations on the farm. And like since most of our actual like agricultural production does come from these like really big corporate farms, then like the actual sort of pathway to more economic liberties and economic sort of justice is through the farm worker and not through sort of the farm owner, like small time farmer protecting their family farm. But again, I think it's really hard to talk about this, honestly, because I think a lot of people, when you start talking about that, feel like, oh, you're attacking this like grand ideal of the American pastoral farmer. And I think it is a difficult topic. There's no really great solution <laughs> from my end either. No, I, I think that's a good point. I mean, when you if you're just comparing numbers, the economically disadvantaged is much more the farm worker of larger operations than it is the small family farmer who may do this as a hobby because they have the land in their family or whatever the case may be. Now, uh, all right, I, I know I've kept you a couple of minutes late already, but last question that I promise I will let you go. I really do appreciate your work and the time here today. Um, what's what's next for you? You don't have to give too much away that you don't want to give away, obviously, but what are you focusing on next? What types of questions or pursuits are top of your mind when it comes to food and ag? Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably the way to talk about some of the more futuristic kind of things that we're interested in. We've talked about agriculture R&D, where we, we spend a lot of time at Breakthrough advocating for more public R&D spending for agriculture. And I think that that is a good thing. I think this, this it's limited. Uh, I think we'd still need to sort of be able to take R&D from the laboratory and put it on the farm. And I think something that we're sort of starting to work on and we've done a little bit of work on is looking at different kinds of public policy options to both incentivize production, but also um, help scale up sort of new technologies. And I think looking at examples in like the DOE, they have this loan program office that, you know, has gotten a lot of criticism for Solyndra. It's like a trigger word for a lot of people in sort of decarbonization spaces. But Solyndra was solar company um, that got a very large loan from the U.S. federal government and subsequently lied to Congress about different sort of metrics. And the company went bankrupt and U.S. federal government did not get money back from this, uh, lost a significant amount of money. And it became sort of a, a hot button issue for conservatives uh, who were like looking to point to sort of the excesses of the Obama administration. But this was done through the DOE loan program office. And for a while, it was sort of like underfunded and not sort of doing much. Uh, but the IRA recently gave it a ton more money. And I think there's a lot of optimism that LPO can sort of fund new projects, and they've already done this. They funded a couple projects for battery manufacturing facilities uh, for Ford and GM. Famously, in 2011, they funded the production of the Tesla Fremont, California production facility that is still their biggest production facility. But this is like an example of where energy and sort of that side of decarbonization is much further ahead than the USDA and sort of the agriculture side, because there's not really sort of a, a version of this for agriculture or agricultural technologies. And I think just looking at pathways to sort of build an industrial policy for agricultural technologies and production facilities 
that can help decarbonize agriculture while also like maintaining food abundance. That's something that I think we're interested in doing. That's something I'm interested in sort of working on some more and uh, advocating for for the federal government to do and looking at sort of also like what states could possibly do towards this end. At the same time, I may be sort of shifting gears a little bit and looking a little bit more at, at international agriculture, working with some people at Breakthrough to like look at sort of global fertilizer use and like sort of talk about fertilizers just a little bit more and thinking about like how global trade and sort of food security are tied to broader sort of pathways for global decarbonization of agriculture. And I think that that's sort of broadly speaking what, what I'm doing. I don't know if that answers it. I wanted to talk a little bit about the loan program stuff. Yeah. I'm I'm really glad you did, because to me, what connected the dots when you were talking about that was like, this has to do with the way we view agriculture differently. As when we talk about public money for sustainable agriculture, you know, what comes to mind is like things on the farm, like uh, incorporating livestock or cover crops and all those things are great, but we don't think of it on an industrial scale like we did with energy, it sounds like, which is like, well, how can we look at this, you know, scale sustainable agriculture industrially? That's just a different way of looking at that. I don't think most people are thinking about right now. Yeah, no, I think that's ex- that's very well put, and I, I think that's that's right. I think this is the case because of a lot of the sort of pastoral imagination. People do think of farms as there's like six horses, thirty cows, and a bunch of chickens, and then you know there's a blueberry patch and a cornfield. Yeah, that's really not what American agriculture looks like. No, you didn't and eat food that came from that farm today, most likely. No, no, definitely <laughs> not. I had a I had some prepackaged bread this morning and some butter and jam that is yeah not organic but yeah i think that's right a lot of this sort of talk about solutions is still imagining this sort of like 19th century agriculture to a large extent where we're trying to sort of think about what 21st century agriculture is going to look like it is going to be more and more based in factories it's things like alternative proteins i think things like cell cultured meat which to me is fascinating it's like an actual sort of avenue for both getting at these like guttural sort of taste impulses, but also at, you know, scaling up these much more sustainable, ethical goods. It's things like improved mechanical equipment, where like the DOE is focusing on, you know, batteries for GM and Ford. You can do the same thing and get like John Deere, have a whole different sort of set of technologies. And there are a lot of problems with John Deere in terms of like right to repair and all of that. I think there's some interesting social questions towards this as well. But yeah, there's a lot of pathways there. How do you make fertilizer without a ton of natural gas is a big question. Uh, how do you do that at scale? And I think like right now, the on a, in the US, it's not really as big of a problem for like, prices are high, but for the world and for the future of agricultural abundance, we're going to need to be able to add nutrients into soil for a long time, maybe forever. And uh, doing that in a way that's not reliant on fossil fuels and like the sort of fossil fuel infrastructure that we've had for the last century is probably going to be a really important thing for the federal government and for sort of public research all over the world to sort of tackle and think about. Producing ammonia without natural gas is a huge problem. And it's one that we can do, but we can't do it with any kind of scale or sort of cost efficiency. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode with Alex Smith. Learn more about what he's doing over at their website, which is just thebreakthrough.org. I will also make sure I link to some of the articles and publications that we talked about in today's episode in the show notes. So you can check that out directly if you'd like there. Hey, thanks once again to Sound Agriculture for being our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter. And thank you 
for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Ag innovation.